Take your Bible and let's get to it. Open up to uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're in verse uh, 14. Romans 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly, do not be wise in your own estimation. We're continuing on this evening here in our study of this uh, chapter, looking at the application really of theology in our lives. And uh, we are to cease thinking as the world thinks and we're begin we're to begin to act and think like uh, Christians we are in view of uh, our life or the view all of our life in view of God's great grace and mercy to us uh, in Christ as it says back up in verse 1 Paul says I urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship so this is where proper theology begins in the application of that theology in our life, right? It begins with looking at the cross. That's what he's talking about. In view of the mercies of God, we're looking at the cross. We're looking at all the events of the cross. We're seeing all that God has done for us and in us through Christ. Because apart from Christ, as we just sang, we're still under condemnation, right? Apart from the cross of Christ, we're still all under condemnation. We're still all dead in trespasses and sins. And as I've been saying often, and I think a lot lately in the, in the morning, the cross is everything. Listen to me. The gospel is the answer. And we go, yeah, I got that. No, no, listen to me. The gospel is the answer. It's the answer to all of the problems in this world. It's the answer to all your problems on a personal level, national level, international level. And if you think there's something else that's better than the gospel of Jesus Christ, you end up with the world like, we li like we're living in. Utter chaos. The gospel is the issue crosses everything the historical reality of jesus christ real man of history dying on that cross there in golgotha absolutely innocent condemned unjustly treated as a felon murdered by wicked men the king of glory suffering humiliated dying an ignominious death is everything now to the world to those who are perishing it's what foolishness but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? The power of God unto salvation. Is the power of God unto salvation, is the wisdom of God, because the sacrifice of Christ on that cross is put on full display. The person of Christ is put on full display. The one who so loved us that he gave himself, right? He incarnated himself. He came into this world to die for rebellious men and women like you and I, so that we who had repent and believe upon him would not perish but have eternal life. So again, the one who died there on the cross, who redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, again, as it's written, everyone, or curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So there's Christ literally dying on the cross, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The innocent bearing the crimes of the guilty, so that we might be accepted in the presence of the Father, justified the moment we put our faith in Christ, completely forgiven and positively made righteous. Because God's holiness and God's justice was upheld, satisfied in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the mercy 
and the grace of God through his dear son. And, and I'm going to say it again just a little different way. We can never take our eyes off the cross. Because it's on the cross where God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our, our own, own righteousness, we don't have any. We're desperate for what the theologians would call an alien righteousness, meaning a righteousness outside of ourselves. We're desperate for an alien righteousness in order to stand in the presence of God who gives it to us through the person of Jesus Christ, again, as a gift of his grace. That's why Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We should never take our eyes off the cross. We should always glory in it. The cross really should be the center of our vision. Because again, it's the cross that's brought us from death to life. It's the cross that has reconciled our relationship with God. It's the cross that's made us new creations in Christ. Old things pass away, new things have come. And we who were once those who were slaves of sin because of the cross have now been made slaves of righteousness. And all of life is to be lived and seen through that lens as a Christian as what God has done for us in and through Christ. Because again, we're debtors to grace. All of life is to be lived in light of the glorious kindness and love that God has shown us in view of his great mercies to us in Christ. And again, we just sang of it just a few moments ago. Because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been set free from all condemnation, right? There's now, therefore, no condemnation. Right? There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from condemnation, set free to serve him, and dwell by the person of the Holy Spirit, able to live the life that God has called us to do under the direction and power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, we have certain responsibilities towards God and certain responsibilities towards others. We've been looking at those in this text over the last few times together. Again, back up to verse 1, in view of the cross, our responsibilities to God, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, Brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Well, obviously a living sacrifice is vastly different from a dead sacrifice. Right? Dead sacrifices just lay there and do nothing. Living sacrifices are holy unto God. Active. So what Paul is calling us to do in view of the cross is to offer ourselves to God in total, mind, body, soul. He wants all of us. He wants all of us. He wants every part of us. And he wants us, listen, all the time. All the time. Because now we're his slaves. We've been purchased by the shed blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. I, I said this a hundred times from this pulpit. We've got to de-Americanize our Christianity. We've got to start thinking biblically. It's vital always, but I think it's vital, especially in the time in which we're living when, when things are heating up, we've got to think as biblical Christians. God owns us all. He wants us all in total. Therefore, again, everything about our life is lived with a focus on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the one who's given himself for us as a great demonstration of his love and mercy as he's laid down his life in our place. The second responsibility we have to God is to make sure that our minds are completely controlled by God's most holy and precious word. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We're to make sure that we, 
intentionally do not allow ourselves to be pressed into the world's mold, but constantly we're to have our minds renewed by the word of truth so that we may do the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect in his sight. Paul says, look, that's reasonable, that's a rational response to God's mercy through Christ. A reasonable, rational response to be born, being born again, to, to having new life in Christ because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who pass from death uh, uh, to life because of the cross, it's reasonable that we'd have our minds filled with God's will, God's word. So we've talked about responsibilities we have towards God, and then we started talking about responsibilities we have towards each other in view, again, of the, the cross. We're not taking our eyes off the cross. Because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have responsibilities to God, we have responsibilities towards each other. And again, we've talked through those. Verse 3, walk, uh, we talked about, uh, Paul talks about walking humility. Verses 4 and 5, uh, the fact that we're called to a life uh, in the church, in the fellowship of interdependence. Not independence, but interdependence. Verses 6 through 8 spoke of the responsibility we have with the gifts that God has given to us because God has given each member of his body a gift for the benefit of the body. And as I said, we, when we went through that uh, uh, section, we have a right to your gift. If you're a passive attender, if you are uh, 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 someone who sits in the pews and not actively involved in ministry someplace in this fellowship, using whatever giftedness God has given to you, you're disobedient. It's, it's just that plain and simple. We're saved to serve. Right? Christianity is not a spectator sport. Jesus Christ didn't say, hey, I love you guys from heaven, and, and I hope things goes well for you. I'm not trying to be irreverent, but he didn't do that. He came here. He incarnated himself. He got dirty. Because that's who we are, right? As fallen human beings in a fallen world, we're dirty. He got involved physically, literally, tangibly. Lived a life amongst sinners. And that's what we're called to do. We're to live life with each other. And we're to serve each other. There's no passive uh, people in the body of Christ that are obedient to the word of God. And then in verse 9, in view of the mercies of God, again, we're looking at the cross. Uh, we're called to live in the body of Christ, the church, in an attitude or in a manner that is genuine and sincere in its love. Verse 9. Look there. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, I think love really is the preeminent virtue that guides all of the actions of the believer because I think the preeminent characteristic of the person of God that he demonstrates to fallen men is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And again, love, genuine love gives. It's not just sentimentality. It's not just words, but it's actions. So again, in view of the mercies of God in our own life, we have an overarching responsibility to be like our God, to be a visible manifestation of his presence in this world, and again, we have the command to exercise love towards others. And I told you that uh, last time we were together, I really think 9 through 21, that section of Scripture, the one overarching command over that entire section of verses is this one. It's verse 9. It's love. Again, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. Let love be sincere. Let love be real. Remember when we went through that, we talked about you can't put the mask on like you're an actor in a play. It's got to be the real thing. Somebody entitled this section, like when Christianity gets real or when Christianity gets dirty, right? This is real-life Christianity. 
This is not just theory. This is really diving into it uh, and, and being a part of it. So love, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, we went through that. I told you that word love there is agape, and agape love is the kind of love that God demonstrates towards the world. And again, it's an action love. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he what? He gave, right? He didn't just stay at a distance, but he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, so again, agape love is all sacrificial. It's a, it's a sacrifice of self for the sake of others, even others who may not care about us, even for those who may even hate us. Agape love is not, the, not a, a feeling, but a determined act of the will, which always results in determined acts of self-giving. Agape love is the willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above one's own. Agape love leaves no room for pride, vanity, arrogance, self-seeking, or self-glory. And agape love is the love of choice that we are commanded to demonstrate, to exercise, even in behalf of our enemies. So again, the one command that is over the entire section, the fundamental statement, is verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Because if we have our eyes on the cross... And again, understand that the love of God that he has demonstrated towards us in Christ, all the great things that he has done for us and through, or in us and for us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through substitutionary death, listen, that changes everything. If you really understand the cross and God's mercy in your life, that changes everything about your life. How you live, how you act, where you go, how you spend money, time, resources. How, how you treat everybody, how you treat people in the church, how you treat people outside the church. When we stop and think that God has loved us so through the person of Jesus Christ to the extent that Christ has come and stands in our place in order to reconcile our relationship and again to grant us forgiveness of sin, it is reasonable that we would give our life to God in total. That's a rational, reasonable response to God's mercies towards us in Christ. And now because we are in Christ, we're alive to God, no longer slaves to sin, but indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit like our Savior in union with our Savior, again, it would be reasonable to see the great, it would be reasonable to see the great characteristic of our God demonstrated in us, right? Again, the great characteristic, the great nature of God himself as he relates to men is love. Love towards others. That's what we're to look like. We're to look like the Savior. Again, we're to demonstrate a love that is unselfish, self-giving, self-sacrificing, uh, devotion to others. And, and that's what we've seen in the study. So how does it work out? Well, Paul's been telling us how it works out, and there's a variety of different fashions uh, uh, that he has mentioned. I'm just going to read through the text here. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Verse 10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Verse 11, Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Verse 12, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Verse 13, Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And we went through all of those uh, previously. Therefore, again, because of God's mercies to us through Christ, we have an ever-expanding realm of responsibilities and duties. Starts with God, goes to others, and expands out. And again, last week we were in verses uh, uh, four through uh, 14 through 16, and we talked about, as 14 does, the issue of persecution. Verse 14, bless those who persecute, bless and curse not. So again, there's these ever-expanding circles, categories of influence because of the mercies of God in our own life and duties we have inside of those realms that expand out. 
Duties towards God, duties towards each other in 9 through 13. And then when you get the first 14, you get into that category, uh, uh, the second circle, if you will, duties towards those who are Christians and those who are not necessarily Christians. Some of the characteristics of, of people in this category could be Christians, they could not be Christians. So we're not, we're not to the full next circle, which is absolute enemies, but we're in this kind of middle circle. And again, we're looking at our responsibilities to them. Now again, we saw last time when persecution comes, uh, again, the text says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. So if you are viewing all of life through the mercies of God in your own life, through the person of Jesus Christ, if you're obedient to the word of God, then you must not only resist hating and retaliating against those who do you harm, but the command is you have to take the additional step. You have to take the additional step and bless them. Paul's essentially paraphrasing the Lord's own words in Luke 6, 27, where he says, I say to you, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. So we are to treat those who do us wrong as if they are our friends. We are to seek those who do us wrong, we're to seek their good. For those who do us wrong, we're to take them, to to the best good for them is take them to the throne of grace that they might find help. So we're to take them to the throne of grace, we're to pray for them, and then beg God that he might be merciful to them and change their mind, that he might work in their hearts, those who are persecuting us. Because this is how God has treated us. So when persecution comes, we are to react to our persecutors out of the fruit of being overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God in our own lives. And we have been called by God through the person of Jesus Christ to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 44. And we've been called by God the Father to demonstrate the fact that we are indeed in his family, that we are indeed his children, his sons. Therefore, like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we who call ourselves Christians, we do what? We love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Right? We, are, we are being called here to live distinctively Christ-like lives. We're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect uh, and, and love those who persecute us. Again, we need to remember and stop and remember how God has treated us, how God has dealt with us. Remember again that we were at one time God's enemies. We were at one time those who were apart from Christ. We were at one time those who were uh, aliens, rebels, And when we were God's enemies, God demonstrated his own love towards us in that he sent Christ into the world and Christ died for us, right? So when persecution comes, we're to remember. We're to remember God's kindness to us, his mercy to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We're to remember the fact that we were once like our persecutors, separated from God, apart from God's love, apart from his mercy, the gospel was veiled, right? right? The gospel was veiled uh, from our eyes, and we were perishing. Because of our sin and because of the God of this world had blinded our eyes to the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. But God, in his great grace and great mercy, opened our eyes to see the truth uh, concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought us to faith, brought us to Christ, and by grace he saved us. So again, our responsibility towards those who persecute us as we pray for them that God would do the same thing 
to them that he has done for us. Again, the, the command of Christ, demonstrated by Christ uh, on the cross towards his enemies, was grace and persecution. He's dying on the cross, and what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen, in uh, Acts chapter 7, he's the first martyr in the church. He's being stoned to death, and he prayed for those, mon- those men who were killing him, saying, Lord, don't hold the sin against him. Acts chapter 7, verse 16. Peter wrote some years later, 1 Peter 2 and 22, For you have been called for this purpose, as Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting him to himself to him who judges righteously. So when persecution comes our direction, we should be Christ-like in our response towards that persecution, towards our persecutors. And again, as those, for those who persecute us, those who bring that persecution, we should pray for them. Again, that God would open their hearts and minds to the truth, that they would know the love and the mercy of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as we do. And we should not be surprised when persecution comes because the Bible says it's going to happen. Indeed, all who desire, desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution's coming, I told you. Sometimes it uh, comes from within, within the visible church. Sometimes it comes within the uh, visible religious establishment. Sometimes it comes from outside. It comes from the world. But it's coming. It might even come, and I know it has for some of you already, it comes from your own family. Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I came to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Talked about it this morning. Jesus is the preeminent one. And persecution may come from outside, may come from inside, may come within your own family. But Jesus Christ is still the preeminent one, and he must be preeminent in our own lives. Above all earthly relationships. Now, the truth is, when we talk about persecution, the truth is, as bad as things are presently, again, still because of the general tone of the religious freedom that we have in the, in the West, I know it's getting harder, but physical persecution for most people in the West is still relatively rare. I doesn't say it doesn't happen, but it's still relatively rare. So our temptation to get upset, our temptation to curse those who do us harm, is more likely reactions to hostility that is not necessarily life-threatening. It just, we don't like it. It causes us embarrassment. It causes us inconvenience. Somebody says something against us and it uh, upsets us on a personal level. So I think while we understand it, we, we don't want that, but we understand that's one level of persecution. Uh, but the writer of the book of Hebrews says we probably ought to get a grip on ourselves and realize for the most part, uh, most of us in the room have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against sin. Most of us have not shed blood, our own blood, when persecution comes. It may change. I mean, the culture continues to decline 
and opposition to Christ continues to increase, that might change. Persecution, shedding of blood. Because the more there's opposition to Christ, there's more there's opposition to those who follow Christ. And I do think the intensity of persecution is going to ramp up. And when it comes, as I, I believe it's going to come, we in the Western church need to see it for what it is. We, I'm not saying embrace persecution, but on the other hand, I'm saying we can't run from it. We can't run from it. We have to embrace it. We have to embrace it and see it as an opportunity given to us by God to give glory to God and to give glory to Christ. Because that's what Jesus says. Luke 21, verse 12, Christ says, They will lay hands on you, or they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogue and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Luke 21, verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your mind not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom of which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all on account of my name. So when persecution comes, following the Savior, suffering like he suffered, embracing the suffering and persecution as he embraced it, we're looking for an opportunity to give glory to God in Christ. And then when it comes, we rely on God to give us what we need to say with our mouths to respond uh, to the moment in a, in a timely uh, per, uh, fashion. Again, realizing persecution comes and gives us an opportunity to give glory to Christ, a testimony about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, if persecution came for him, it certainly come for us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now verse 15. Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Literally, it says, rejoice with the rejoicing ones and weep with the weeping ones. Now, on first glance, um, it might seem like it's a pretty easy command to follow. But I would suggest that if we're really honest, and we're going to try to be honest here for a few moments, if we're really honest, we might find this command almost as difficult to practically carry out as blessing those who persecute us. Again, God's calling us in Romans chapter 12 to practically live out who we are in Christ as new, redeemed, transformed people different from whom we used to be apart from him. So if you were to ask which is more difficult, to rejoice with those who rejoice or to weep with those who weep, I think most people would immediately say it's easier to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. I don't know, maybe that's just my thought. I, it's easier to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But I don't think that's true. I would suggest to you that it's a distinctively Christian characteristic to rejoice at someone else's prosperity. I'll say it again. I, I suggest it's a distinctively Christian characteristic to rejoice at someone else's prosperity. It's a distinctively Christian characteristic to be blessed by someone else's joy and able to rejoice with someone else. Say, why is that? Well, well, because I think that it's more natural to weep. It's more natural to show uh, emotion of sorrow with someone who's feeling bad, whatever the reason might be. Than it is for us to truly, genuinely enter into exaltation and rejoicing 
with someone who's experiencing a reason for joy. Because when someone is in great sorrow, uh, pity comes in. Pity is demonstrated by us. And when we see people suffering, we see people down, I think it's easier, uh, again, to enter into their suffering uh, than it is to really legitimately enter into someone's joy. And I think, again, if we're honest, there are times when we see someone who is rejoicing and we just flat out do not want to rejoice with them. And I think if we're honest, I think there are times when we see people who are weeping and we're glad they're weeping. I know that sounds harsh, but I think it's true. I think there are times when we see people who are rejoicing and we get mad. We get mad, we get angry because there's some kind of blessing that's coming to that person and we aren't getting one. Sometimes blessing comes to other people at our expense. When we get passed over for the promotion, we get passed over for the job and it comes to another friend or even another brother in Christ. And they're so excited and they come and tell us about this and if we don't say it audibly, we at least run it through our mind and we go, well, what about me? I should have got that job. I should do that job more than you. And again, I think if we're honest, there are times when we see things going bad for someone, they're weeping and we're glad. Or, at a minimum, we just don't care. We don't care because we're not involved in the life. We don't care because maybe we're upset with them. We're angry with them. They've done something to us. Now, now again, I said I was going to be honest for a couple of moments, and you're all uncomfortable and going, oh, man, I can't believe he says these things. Yeah, it's just serious stuff, right? And, and the reality is God knows our heart. Let's rehearse. You know, you know how to do this. You've been we're doing this a long time, right? You all come on Sunday uh, morning, Sunday night, and we're all nice, dressed, cleaned up. And we're all very kind to each other. How you doing, brother? I'm good. Good, very good. Thank you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Everybody's fine, right? When's the last time that somebody on a Sunday morning said, look, can you sit down for a minute? Can we talk after the, the, the service? I'm not fine. i got a bunch of things to tell you. Nobody does that. There's, I'm, there's nothing wrong. We're fine on Sunday morning. We're all cleaned up. We're nice Christian people with no problems, no issues, no struggles. But in reality, as we know, that's not true. I ask you how you're doing. You're fine. And you just argued with your wife the 15 minutes it took you to drive here. Come on, right? Kicked a dog on the way out the door. Shoved the kids in the car. Short with everybody. Reality is, things aren't always fine. The reality is, sometimes we're having a difficulty with brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Sometimes the reality is, living in a fallen world and fallen men and women, sometimes we're really upset with each other. And we're really not in the mood to be happy or to be rejoicing. We're not in the mood to show any kind of sympathy or weeping. And we're certainly, a lot of times, not in the mood to be very loving but we pretend, because we're all fine. But what? God knows our hearts. God knows our hearts. That's what chapter 12 is about. Chapter 12 lays bare our hearts before God. 
chapter 12 was written that God might expose our hearts, that he might test our faith or that we might test our faith also in response to what uh, we say we believe in. So again, chapter 12 of the book of Romans is written as a test of the profession of our faith. Because it's a whole lot easier for us to say we believe, to say we have orthodox doctrine, to say we believe every jot and tittle in, in the gospel, and it's quite another thing to put the gospel into practice. It's quite another thing to actually put the gospel into practice. And this discussion is part of putting the gospel into practice. Because the command of the scripture is those who are viewing the mercies of God, we're to love each other in the body of Christ, and the next word is always. Now, if we're to love everybody in the body of Christ, as Christ has loved us always, I would assume that probably means the people inside your family and all the people that you just got inside the car with to come to church. We're to love each and every one in the body of the Christ always. We're to bless those who persecute us always. We're to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. Next word, always. It's much easier for us to say, I believe in doctrine, than that doctrine never work its way out practically in our day and in day out lives. But that's, again, what Romans 12 is about. God's calling us to do that very thing. God is calling us to work out our doctrine in real life always. To work out what we say we believe always. God's calling us to demonstrate the fact that we're indeed, we are those who have indeed been transformed, that we have been indeed changed, that we're viewing life again, all of life through the mercies of God to us through the person of Jesus Christ. He's calling us to work out the reality that the person of the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That again, we're new creations in Christ. He's calling us to practically live out the doctrine of regeneration. Right? Doctrine's meant to be practical. He's calling us to live out the doctrine of regeneration. So doctrine is not just something to be believed, but doctrine is to be lived out on a practical level. And God is calling us to live out, listen, God is calling us to live out as though Christ lives within us because he does. He does. So God is calling us to live beyond the mere profession of our lips, but to actually put into practice what we say we believe. And who we say we are as those who are truly in Christ. So God is calling us to practical obedience. Now, as much as we want to obey as much as we think we're fine and we're all cleaned up, the reality is we all struggle. That means all of us. We all struggle. We all struggle with this thing that's called the flesh, this unredeemed uh, human, uh, humanity within us. Our flesh is full of pride. And pride is always trying to get the best of us. Pride wants us to be taken care of. Pride wants us to be number one. Pride wants us to be exalted over everyone else. Pride wants us to be recognized. Pride wants us to get the promotion. Pride wants us to feel all of the joy. But again, when God brings us to the cross, as he's doing here in chapter 12, when he brings us in view of the mercies of God to Christ, or through us to Christ, again, that changes everything because the, Christ, because the cross has changed everything. Everything's changed by the cross. Again, God says you have certain duties to me, you have certain duties to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of the cross, you have certain duties to those who don't know Christ. 
And again, in view of God's mercies to us in Christ, we have a responsibility to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility to bless those who are persecuting us, to bless them and not curse them. And we have a responsibility to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And when we don't, when we do not genuinely love our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we do not genuinely seek the blessing of those who are persecuting us, when we do not rejoice truly with those who are rejoicing and show sympathy and empathy with those who are weeping, then we're exposing our pride-filled hearts. We're exposing our preoccupation with ourselves. And that's the, that's the, the ultimate problem with every human being without exception. It's pride. It's the problem of self. Again, self always wants to be made much of. Self always wants to be considered important. Self always wants to be considered great. That's man's problem from the fall. And that's, in fact, what led to the fall. Adam and the woman were absorbed with themselves. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted what they wanted instead of desiring to do what God commanded them to do. They were filled with jealousy. They were filled with pride, filled with envy. And again, preoccupation with self has been the the nature of every man since the fall. But for the Christian, the alternative to pride, the alternative to preoccupation with self, listen, is to be consumed with the person of Jesus Christ. For the Christian, the alternative to pride and preoccupation with self is to be consumed with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the essence of faith. Turn away from self, turn to Christ. Because in faith, we stopped trusting ourselves completely, and we completely started trusting in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, in view of the mercies of God towards us in Christ, with our eyes firmly fixed on the cross, we are to view all of life in that lens. Therefore, if we are doing that, then we can indeed rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Because again, because of the cross, we're now dwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and the Holy Spirit has brought to us new natures, a regenerated nature that makes us new creations in Christ, new people from who we once were apart from Christ. And again, it's only the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the practical empowerment of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit through the gospel that can deliver us from self. So again, genuine faith is being delivered from self and being consumed with Christ. And when we're consumed with Christ, we're not consumed with self. And when we're consumed with Christ, we're not conformed to this world because we've been transformed in our minds. Our minds have been renewed. And when we're consumed with Christ, we're concerned with the things that concern Him. And in Christ, He's concerned with His church, those whom He has given His life for. And therefore, if we are in Christ, when one, members, one member of the church suffers, then we all suffer. Or when one member of the body rejoices or is honored, then all the members are rejoicing or being honored. And because we're in Christ, when someone or something either positively or negative happens to somebody else in the fellowship, <clears throat> another brother and sister in Christ, we're either all positively or negatively, whatever the situation is, affected by what happens to that one person. Again, we're either rejoicing with those who are rejoicing or we're weeping with those who are weeping. Whatever happens to that person happens to us because they're part of our body. We're in the body together. 
Because again, listen to me, as Christians, we don't live independent lives. We are interdependent. Independent lives is a Western theology that is not biblical. God saved us individually, but then he decided to place us in one body. And again, whatever happens to that one body happens to each and every member of that body. Again, positive or negative. And being self-forgettingly satisfied with Christ. I just made that word up, okay? But I'm preaching, you're not, so I get to do that, right? Being self-forgettingly satisfied with Christ allows us to genuinely enter into rejoicing with those who rejoice and enter into weaving with the weaving ones. Because again, we, we care for each other. And because we care for each other, we're sensitive to the needs of those around us. We can fully and totally enter into the joy of those who've been rejoicing and, uh, because we love them. And we're so happy for them when they're blessed. And, and because they're blessed, we can't restrain our joy for them. And when our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ are weeping, we come alongside with them and we share tears with them. We bear their sorrow, we bear their pain. We're never insensitive or, listen, indi or indifferent. We're never insensitive or indifferent. And that's what it really means to practically understand the gospel. And that's what it means to live the gospel. <laughs> the gospel is not just what we say we believe. But the gospel, and understanding it properly, is really practically and tangibly how we live our lives out together in the body of Christ. I thought about saying this a whole bunch of times this week. Never wrote it down in my notes, but... If your theology, if your theology only, only leads you to further study and to the book club on a Saturday morning and not to the hospital bed when somebody's suffering, you have poor theology. You may be an intellect. You may know a whole lot more stuff than I know. But unless your theology takes you to the hospital bed, unless your theology takes you to the graveside, unless your theology takes you to those who are mourning in great times of suffering, you don't understand the cross nor the person of Jesus Christ properly. And that's what Paul's begging this issue for, <clears throat> to practically understand the ramifications of the gospel. When you die, there's not a theology test, and you get... You get an A on your theology test, you get to go this part of heaven, you get a B or a B plus, and you go, no, right? <laughs> I said this a long time ago. Somebody wrote me a letter. Don't write me a letter. Because it's just a picture, okay? When you die in Christ, and you say you belong to the church, you know what, the, what happens? First thing that happens is somebody up in heaven puts a stethoscope to your heart to see if you've got any life in you. You said you're dead, I know that. Do you have the life of Christ in you? Right? It's a picture, right? It's a metaphor. It's okay. You're not going crazy, right? Because it's going to demonstrate itself in the way you've lived your life. Right? Because the theology of Jesus Christ was practical. He incarnated himself. For God so agape, God so loved the world, <clears throat> he gave his only begotten son, and his son did what? Came. Right? This is, this is uh, what did I say earlier? 
This is when Christianity gets dirty. This, this is the, uh, the, the shepherds down with the sheep because the sheep are dirty and the sheep in. This is theology 101 on a practical level. It's not ethereal. It's reality. We live in a fallen world with fallen people. We did Tim Willoughby a couple weeks ago. To say from here, from the, from the pulpit or from the men's Bible study, I can't remember. He said, uh, people are dirty, right? People are messy. Jesus got involved with the messy people. That's what we're called to do for followers of Christ. If we understand the gospel, we're to live the gospel. <clears throat> and again, the gospel is not just what we say we believe in. The gospel is how we live life presently because we only have one life. I mean, isn't the kind of love that God's calling us to, isn't that the same kind of love that Christ said, if you live like this, if you love like this, then the world's going to know that you belong to me, right? John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? <clears throat> you want to be a witness to the world and love each other in the body of Christ exponentially as God has loved us. And again, I would suggest this, that we can't really truly rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with the weeping ones unless we know our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Unless we truly enter into each other's lives. Unless we have real relationships with each other. Life on life. Life on life with a desire to do each other spiritually good because isn't that what Christ did when he came? He came to do us spiritually good. So life on life following uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Life on life intentionally looking for ways to do each other good spiritually. So then the question would be then how well do you know each other in the body of Christ? How well do you know your brothers and sisters in this fellowship? And there's a whole lot of people for you to get to know so I would assume you probably don't have a whole lot of time to be bored because there's like new people in here all the time. <laughs> How much do you care about them? Are you in a small group? If not, why not? Common answers, I don't want to be. The common answer, I don't want to be, to the question of why are, are, are you in a small group, and the answer, no, is I don't want to be, that's a self-centered answer. Because being in a small group would give you an opportunity to get to know somebody and be a blessing to them in their lives and to have an opportunity to do them spiritually good. Because a person with a desire towards practical obedience will know and love his brothers in Christ because a person who is truly preoccupied with Christ is preoccupied with Christ's people, just like he is. On to verse 16. He says, be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation, right? Be of the same mind towards each other. The NIV ASV says, live in harmony with one another. So what does that mean? Be of the same mind. What does that mean? It means we're to be united in feelings and in interests. So it means we're to be agreed together and to cherish the same views, be harmonious, to have a common mind. Uh, to let one mind seek these things and strive for this kind of harmony and unity. Now, I don't think what he's saying is that every single Christian is going to absolutely agree on every single issue. I don't think that's really the idea here. We're all different people. And we're not necessarily going to agree on everything. But here's the point. When we don't agree on everything, we must and we have to be harmonious. That, that's what he's saying. There's got to be a harmony. And I think what he's saying when he says, be of the same mind towards one another, 
I think he says there has to be a basic unity in the body of Christ, because there is. There has to be a basic unity that's on a, a, a physical level, a tangible level, that has to be played out, lived out in the body of Christ. There can't be any discord. He's saying you can't bring in or you can't allow schism uh, to come into the body, into the brethren. There cannot be any true division among us. Differences and preferences, that's acceptable. Divisions, absolutely unacceptable. We are to be of the same mind or be like-minded, united together in Christ, unified by the truth. Again, in the Bible, the word of the living God. Again, it's the Bible that establishes the standard of truth on which we find our unity. So to be of the same mind uh, towards each other means that the Bible becomes the ultimate standard. Be of same mind, to be of same mind towards one another, uh, again, or to live in harmony with one another. I, I think we have the same purpose. We understand that. The same purpose altogether is we want to glorify Christ. Every single morning, we all get up, and the first thing we say to the Lord every morning is, say, Lord, help me honor you today, right? That's what we do. Every one of us in the room, I'm sure we do that. The first thing we do when we get up in the morning is, Lord, help me honor you this morning and not dishonor you. I, I just want you to be preeminent. I, I want you to be glorified in my life today. I don't care about all the things I got to do. Lord, just help me to deal with it in a manner that's pleasing to you. So again, that's our purpose, our united purpose, the glory of God, the glory of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, all, that you all agree that there be no division among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Again, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his mercies towards us, we all agree there's no divisions. We're not going to allow it. We all have one goal, the honor of God, the, the glory of Christ. That's it. Differences, preferences, sure. But we have one goal, one purpose, the honor and the glory of God in Christ. We're not going to allow schism. We're not going to allow division. Again, there's a spiritual unity based on doctrine, based on the uh, 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 revelation of the Scripture, uh, again, based on the revelation of God himself to men. And God says that, or Paul says, uh, God says that, that God has saved us, right, and he's placed us into the body of Christ, Again, I talked about that this morning a little bit, the greatest reality on the planet, the greatest uh, privilege group we have to be belong with, the blood-bought saints, right? We're here by God's sovereign uh, uh, ordained purposes. And therefore, because God through Christ, and Christ has literally given his blood for us, there's, there's not a superficial unity. There's a real deep unity made possible by Christ's blood, and we have to protect that unity. because of the truth of the scripture, because of doctrinal truth, there can't be division. We won't allow it. But we are united together, being of the same mind towards one another, living together in harmony with one another. So there's an internal and external unity best based on the revealed truth. I mean, Paul says that several times. He says, first, uh, Romans 15, 5, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ. Uh, second, uh, Corinthians 13, 11, brethren rejoice, brethren rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, uh, and the God of uh, love and peace shall be with you. Uh, Philippians 2, 2, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. Uh, Peter adds to this uh, in the discussion, 1 Peter 3, 8, he says, to sum it up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So there's the command, right? We're to, because we're to, have this, to be of the same mind towards one another. Well, how do you do that? How do you practically live that out? How do you work it out? How do you make sure that we're of the same mind 
uh, and living together in harmony. Well, Paul's going to give two ways immediately. Two ways. First, he says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And then secondly, he says, do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Literally, the verse says, not minding the high things, but associating with the humble. Now, there's some disagreement amongst the commentators exactly what Paul is saying, not minding the high things. Some people think the phrase means only in our thinking uh, to intellectual pride and to haughtiness. Other people think it refers to high desires or high ambitions in the social realm seeking to be elevated. But whatever the case might be, these high-minded things are not good. These lofty things are not not helpful in in a spiritual sense because these high-minded lofty things are really a result of pride, self-seeking pride. And I think that when Paul says to be of the same mind towards one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly, I think it's really, I think it's really talking about the Christian virtue of not showing partiality. And James 2 has a great little statement on this. So why don't you just put a little mark there in your Bible and, and flip over to James 2 real quick. And let's just look at a couple verses there. James chapter 2. Verse 1, James 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you uh, stand over there and sit down by my footstool. Verse 4, have you not made distinctions amongst yourself and become judges with evil motives? Verse 9, drop down to verse 9, it says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. Now, the truth is there's no impartiality with God. Therefore, if we're going to follow God and follow Christ, there can't be any impartiality with us. Again, Paul says we're to be of the same mind together. We have the same mind towards each other. We have the same Father, the same Lord, the same Christ, united together, all in one body. So we can't have our mind set on the high things, the haughty things, uh, or have a haughty mind or an exalted mind. We can't make distinctions among brethren. It's nothing more than sin. We're to associate with the lowly. And again, the idea of the associate is is that that we're carried away with the lowly. We're, We're part of them. We can't be high-minded. We can't allow ourselves to be uh, carried away or with men of high estate. We can't uh, reject those of low estate. And what he's saying is not that we're to reject you know, either category, but he's saying, look, if you're making a distinction because you think there's something in this rich man who comes into the room that you might be able to get from that rich man, that's where the sin is. You're showing partiality. There's no, there's no uh, aristocracy in, in the body of Christ. There's no divisions based on sh- social level. We treat every man in the body of Christ uh, the same because they're, they're uh, heirs of uh, salvation just like we are in, in Christ. 
We treat every man, we give respect to every man because of their standing before God in Christ. We're not, the, the importance of a person is not based on their financial status or their, or, or their importance in the world's eyes. So again, Paul, or James says, look, if a man comes into your assembly, he has a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and some comes a poor man with dirty clothes, treat him the same. Treat him the same. No distinctions. No distinctions based on economic status, no distinctions made on outward appearances. We treat, we treat each man in the body of Christ with the same value as God has treated them with one made in his image. Anything else would be sin. So if you show partiality again to the rich man, it's nothing more than self-seeking pride because, again, you're hoping perhaps that you'd get some favor from that rich man. The only thing we should be concerned about with every man is just do they know the Lord, right? Or are they God's children? Are they heirs of eternal life in Christ? Because a man who sets his pride aside is consumed with the person of Jesus Christ and the one who's consumed with the person of Jesus Christ is consumed with the same things that Jesus Christ was consumed with and Jesus Christ was consumed with men, all men, lowly men, high men. Didn't matter to him, right? Uh, he, he's the one, Jesus Christ is the one who was a, the friend of uh, sinners, the friend of publicans. He sat down with them, he ate with them. He proclaimed the gospel with them. So too should we. And again, this is why pride is wrong, right? Why there should be no division on any level. There should be no distinctions in the body of Christ. Because everybody enters the church, the fellowship of the body of Christ, how? Same way. Same door. Everybody comes to the same door, and over top of the door it says, great sinner, desperately in need of a great savior. Reprobate. Worthless. Worthy of condemnation, eternal wrath, except they've been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're all sinners in need of a great savior. There's no distinctions in the body of Christ. And because that's true, because we are now in faith, we're now turned from self to Christ through the cross, we can all rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we can weep with those who are weeping. And we can all be of the same mind together, living in harmony, not one higher or lifted up in our minds than the other. Again, freely, graciously loving, associating ourselves with every man, treating every man in the body of Christ, made in the image of God with dignity and respect that they deserve. Again, realizing that every man, no matter what their social distinction, economic distinction, what they look like, are all in need of the Savior. Every man who knows the Savior is a brother in Christ. Again, it doesn't matter what the externals look like. So don't allow these kind of divisions to come in. Go back and let me finish this up here in uh, Romans 12. Again, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who are rejoicing, weep with those who are uh, weep. Again, verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And then he says, do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And I really think that little statement there is the pinnacle of this section. I think it's the apex, the zenith, whatever word you want to use. Because a man who's wise in his own estimation is really a man who's full of what? Pride. A man who's wise in his own estimation is really full of pride. And again, it's the rejection of pride really is the governing principle, I think, in this section. The man who's full of himself is full of pride. And the man who's full of himself, full of pride, he thinks it's unfair that he's being persecuted. He's being persecuted. 
Therefore, he retaliates, he curses. Now, the man who's satisfied with Christ, the man who's consumed by Christ, realizes that he's no greater than his master. And really, in reality, he deserves nothing but eternal misery, and God has treated him with great kindness through the Savior. The man who is uh, full of pride cannot rejoice with those rejoicing ones, nor can he weep with the weeping ones, because he's consumed again and focused with himself, preoccupied with himself. The one who is full of pride lifts himself up. He separates himself. He's not drawn to the lowly. He only wants to seek those whom he thinks will do him good, those who might be a benefit to him. And the man who's full of pride is wise in his own estimation. You know, the King James, New King James says he's wise in his own opinion. So again, the man, the man who is wise in his own estimation is a man who thinks he's a superior Christian. The man who's wise in his own estimation is a man who has set himself up as an authority. He's a man who's infatuated with his own ideas or maybe inflated with his own ideas. Maybe both. He's one who's become intellectually proud, one who's high-minded. One who's wise in his own estimation uh, thinks that his view of the Scripture is the only one to be accepted and the only correct interpretation. And if anyone does not agree with him, then they are wrong, and they're outside the pale of what's orthodox and correct. The one who's wise in his own estimation is one who's become proud of his understanding of doctrinal truth and has become high-minded and lifted up with learning by his own intellectual ability. The one who's wise in his own estimation has forgotten the fact that everything he knows about God, everything he knows about Christ, everything he knows about theology is only because God has been so kind and merciful to him and given him an understanding. It's God that's opened his mind to, tr to the truth. Because listen, the Bible teaches that none of us have anything that we were not given. The Bible teaches that we possess nothing that we are not given. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? But if you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So again, everything we have, every kind of understanding we have, everything we have, everything that we are comes to us through the hands of our good God. And if we do happen to have a great mind, a great intellect, great understanding of the truth, it's a gift. It's a gift of God's goodness and mercy to us that he's given us that ability to understand the truth. And that ability to understand the truth, that ability to understand doctrinal truth is not to be used on ourselves or to puff us up. But God has given that intellectual understanding of the truth, the ability to open Scripture or understand the Scripture he has given that to a person for the building up of the body of Christ in love, because that's the purpose. That's what all the gifts are for, for the building up of the body of Christ in love. Not to elevate a person. Intellectual and spiritual pride is a devastating thing. It's wreaked havoc on God's people for a long time, throughout the centuries. Intellectual pride is the sin of Lucifer in God's presence, Right? It's the sin that casts Lucifer from God's presence. It's the sin that has infected the entire universe. So we have to reject the temptation of becoming wise in our own eyes or being wise in our own estimation or being wise in our own opinion. 
We have to reject the temptation of despising people who don't have our understanding. Reject the temptation of seeing ourselves as the sole authority of biblical truth. Because if we don't, then we're guilty of pride. Pride brings division in the body of Christ, and that's expressly prohibited. Now, this thought here is really a discussion for another day, and I'm not going to go very far into it. But we need to realize, look, listen to me, we're not the only show in town. We're, we're not the only show in town. God, what he, God does what he does in his church everywhere. God has his men have not bound the knee everywhere. And there's other people in the body of Christ who don't see everything as we do, uh, but they're every bit as much of the part of Christ's body and members of the community of grace as uh, everyone saved by the, the gospel. I think we have to be very careful uh, of thinking we're the only show in town, nobody else but this church, da 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 That's not true. I do think there's a famine in the land for the word of God, but God still, I, I hear it a lot from different places. There's a faithful man here, I just heard it this morning. There's a faithful man in this town, a faithful man in that town, and a faithful man in this town. Because God is in the process of exalting his son to Lord Jesus Christ, and he will make sure that his message gets out. All that's happening with all of the nonsense that's going on in all these places that are called, that call themselves churches, we're just separating the wheat from the chaff. It's God doing that. God elevating the true biblical preaching churches that exalt the person of Christ and have a high view of the scripture versus those who just like to gather together on a Sunday for whatever reason they do that, right? But, but we're not the issue. Christ is the issue always. So we just need to be very careful, I think, in our attitude towards others, either congregationally or, or, or whatever. And obviously, I, I'm, I'm into sound doctrine, and I'm not begging that issue about being soft on doctrine, but I'm just saying God has his men in his place, and not everybody's bowed the knee, right? God's faithful. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Kill pride, right? John Bunyan once said this. This is great. He who is down need not fall. He who is down need fear no fall. <laughs> right? He who is down need fear no fall. If you're already on your face, you're already humble before God. You don't have to worry about falling. Right? Humble, lowly estate. Everything that God gives us is because of his grace and kindness. We view the entirety of our life through the cross because God has been so very kind to us. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for uh, these few, few verses <coughs> excuse me, that we've had the opportunity to look at tonight. And again, just a reminder of kill pride and look to Christ. We're nothing, you're everything. Jesus is everything. The cross is the only answer. Help us to believe that. Help us to live that reality in view of the mercies, your mercies to us through Christ. Help all of our life to be seen through that lens and how we interact. The responsibilities we have to you, responsibilities we have to others in the body of Christ, and the responsibility we have to those around us who are perhaps not a body, part of the body of Christ. And then as Paul goes on later in the text, those who really are enemies, they aren't making any apology for it, but we still have responsibilities then because we represent you in the world, so help us to represent you well. We're so thankful that you are a God of great grace, a God who's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, and may we walk in humility before you. You are everything, and, and we just want to honor you. Christ, we love, thank you for sending him, for changing our hearts and minds and our lives. 
And again, Lord, I just uh, thank you for the day we've had of worship this morning and this evening. I pray your blessing upon uh, your people, and we just love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.